Um, let's start with Washington, the first president. So I've got five charges that I want to bring to bear against Washington. The first one is violating indigenous rights. Um, Washington was part of a group of people that were we call settlers. We uh, America has been called a nation of immigrants, especially lately, and it's said as if it's a prideful thing. We are a nation of immigrants. Now consider what that means, especially in Washington's time. Immigrants is a synonym for settlers, colonizers. Why were these people so desperate that they had to come to these foreign shores when they're hearing stories about savages that might jump out of the bushes and scalp you at the same time they're hearing stories about opportunity? What does it mean to seek a better life? We're talking money. We're talking opportunity. We're talking exploitation. And occasionally we're talking about fleeing from a bad set of circumstances. But why do we never see indigenous people like Bushmen um, of the Kalahari as immigrants? Why do we never see like the Apache before we, we screwed with them, like showing up on European shores as immigrants? Um, what's happening here that's not serving people that they're so desperate they would take that kind of risk? So this is the environment we're talking about with Washington. Already, there's been so many violations of indigenous rights that, that lead up to Washington. Um, lies, smallpox, that wasn't the Europeans' fault. They didn't know, but it goes right back to their way of life. Consider why we brought so many diseases here instead of picking up diseases here. The only disease I've ever heard, and it's debatable, that Europeans picked up and brought back to Europe was syphilis. But what did we bring over? We got measles, we got smallpox, we got chickenpox, we got, I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's due to this unnatural way of life that we'd been living for millennia, where we have our farm animals living trapped, animals that are supposed to be free. We, we trap them in small pens and have them living close to us, and the viruses that they have mutate, and we pick them up. And that's what we brought over here. So let's get started with Washington. Why do I charge him with a violation of indigenous rights? I'll look through my notes, and we will start in 1763. This was leading up to the Revolutionary War. A royal proclamation from Great Britain restricted settlement to the east of the Appalachians. In other words, no settlers were allowed to go west of those Appalachian mountains. Washington said, I can never look upon that proclamation in any other light than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. It must fall, of course, in a few years, especially when those Indians are consenting to our occupying the lands. Any person, therefore, who neglects the present opportunity of hunting out good land, and in some measure marking and distinguishing them for their own, in order to keep others from settling it, will never regain it. So here we have Washington encouraging people to trespass on land the Indians had not agreed to give them in direct violation of the rule of the land, which was Great Britain at the time. This was before the Revolutionary War. This was the man that was about to become president and impose laws on these very people that he expected them to follow, encouraging them to break the laws against the indigenous rights that even England, who we're taught were the oppressors of the time, were trying to respect until they came up with another agreement with the Indians. Washington is trespassing. Fast forward in time a little bit, and we find ourselves in 1787. This was shortly before... Um, Washington became the president. The Northwest Ordinance was issued by the United States government opening up the Ohio Valley to settlement. Now that England was out of the way, um, the American business was money, how to settle more territory. This increased the need for managing Indian affairs. 
Washington pushed for for treaties as a basis for Indian relationships, and a lot of people applauded him for his peaceful ways. Instead of just going in there with guns blazing, why don't we sit down and make a treaty? But the U.S. government has yet to honor a single treaty, and that was no different in Washington's day. Um, Congress approved treaties with the Shawnee, the Miami, the Ottawa, the Chippewa, the Iroquois, the Sauk, and the Fox. These did not protect tribal lands, and tribes found it necessary to deploy force, which, of course, the U.S. government condemned because they had to enforce their own um, restrictions, which the treaties supposedly were meant to protect. In 1790, um, as Washington is president, the Treaty of New York was restored some of the land given to Georgia that the Creeks, also known as the Muscogee, did not recognize from interpretations of three treaties from the 1780s. It also established a process of assimilation called civilization. So in other words, in addition to the treaties, a new strategy was employed to deal with the Native Americans, the Indians, which was to to coerce them to become us, assimilate them. They had to live like us. The treaty failed, of course, to stop settlers. Now, we've heard the complaints from our white forefathers with the Indians that a chief would sit down and sign a treaty, and then they'd be raids from that very tribe. So we, uh, you know, our ancestors were taught to think of the Indians as dishonest. Now, the Indian form of government is not a empirical, empirical form of government. The chief was signing a treaty agreeing that he would not lead a raid against the whites and would not um, condone it in council. But he has no power over the people in his tribe. If another brave stood up and said, these whites are trespassing on my land, I'm going to lead a raid against them. Who wants to come with me? I'm going to steal some of their horses to get some something back from all that's been taken from us. The chief has no power over him. Now, here's what we don't think about as often. The Indians had the same complaint against the whites. The white chief would sit down, sign a treaty, and say, we will not trespass on these lands. And then very soon the settlers came pouring in. So they wondered why the white chiefs, who supposedly had a government <laughs> where the chiefs had that kind of control over their people, equally failed to have get the people to honor the treaty. In 1790 through 1791, Washington dispatched armies against the Indians resisting settlers, which were defeated. And of course, they had to resist the settlers because the treaties were not being enforced by the whites themselves. Congress was deeply embarrassed about this and authorized a 5,000-man army led by a general, Mad Anthony Wayne. And what kind of bastard do you think gets a name like (laughs) Mad Anthony? He won the battle, and thus the Treaty of Greenville brought tentative peace in 1795. Tentative because, of course, the treaty was not honored. Boo! In 1792 through 1794, coming to the end of Washington's first term, Washington, who, by the way, was the first and last president to run as an independent with John Adams as his vice president, Washington reluctantly approved General Mad Anthony Wayne to annex land with his rangers. He enthusiastically, this being Mad Anthony Wayne, embraced destroying food and killing civilians as tactics. The sale of the confiscated land to settlers was the primary revenue source for the new government. So the national debt was large and one of the primary ways that the U.S. government sought to make money in the beginning of this fledgling government, the United States of America, was to go in, steal land from the Indians, and sell it to settlers. In 
1796, Washington, during his second term as president, says, I believe scarcely anything short of a Chinese wall or a line of troops will restrain land jobbers and the encroachment of settlers upon the Indian Territory. You see, he takes no responsibility for his own. He's got an army that he's willing to employ to take land, but not to protect the indigenous people's land. Um... My next charge against Washington, and I have five, is class hierarchy. Now, that's something that's kind of normalized in our culture, but I, I would say that anytime we talk about class hierarchy, we're talking about a guy that is trying to accumulate, or a woman, that's trying to accumulate more than they need at the expense of someone else, leaving someone else out in the cold. Um, the contrast I find instructive is an indigenous culture. Most of the time, what you find is the chief is no richer, sometimes the poorest man in the tribe, because they consider him a leader because he makes sure that he gives. He gives. He's generous. That's one of the highest values in indigenous society is generosity. So what kind of person accumulates that much? And then we think he's a good leader because he has so much more than he needs and doesn't share it. This is Washington. I consider that a crime. And it's an upside-down truth, too. Uh, elaborate. Well, I mean, it's just looking at how the chief in the tribe is giving and giving and giving. And then this chief of ours, the president, he's taking and taking and taking, and we think he's the best thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Washington family was already a wealthy family. His family had been here for a few generations of Scotch-Irish uh, descent immigrants of course. Um, they were, of their time, the 1%. They were some of the wealthiest people, and Washington definitely became the, the 1%. Washington was actually said to be the richest man in America, um, but that came later in his life. So you could say that not much has changed. Washington, in a way, was the Donald Trump of his time, the very first president. We elected the richest man in America to delete us. Um <laughs> This is the role model we wanted to follow. Somebody that got filthy, rotten, stinking rich. He was a social climber. He learned how to dress. He learned how to talk. He learned who to talk to. He learned the mannerisms that would impress the right people to gain higher and higher status within this hierarchical, um, wealthy society. He was money and land hungry. We see by his meticulous balancing of, a, of the books, which he learned from his mother, whom he hated, um, how to take... Uh, keep careful record of every expenditure and every finance that came in. And so we know a lot about how Washington banked because that was the, his primary concern was keeping up with his money and increasing it. Um, he was more banker than soldier. He got to start as a land surveyor because he understood that land was connected with wealth. He leased Mount Vernon from his half-brother Lawrence, whom he adored and idolized, in 1754, and he gained enough money to own it in 1761. He was known for having a bad temper, especially with anything regarding money. When you read through his letters, the angriest letters, the most venomous letters, have to do with his finances. You read calm letters about war, about this or that, but when it's his finances, he gets really riled up. Um, motivated by money and military service, he served under... British General Edward Braddock. Now, what became known as Braddock's defeat against the French along the Monongahela River, this was prior to the uh, Revolutionary War, Washington was the only unwounded staff, which we find suspicious. Hmm. Anyway, this was considered one of his heroic deeds that he saved other wounded soldiers. He wrote that his chief regrets from this battle were suffering loss and private fortunes because he had to be away from Mount Vernon and his health in 
that order. Uh. This man cared about nothing more, even his own health, than money. In 1759, he greatly expanded his wealth by marrying the widow Martha, uh, I always forget her name. Custis. Custis. Her husband had died, leaving her with a fortune, and the vultures were circling. It was considered you know, pretty normal in that day to try to find a wealthy woman to marry to increase your fortune. And Washington had landed a whale. Um, he came in there with all this social climbing that he'd learned with his uniform and charmed her. And once he was convinced that their marriage was to be established, he immediately started buying stuff to add to Mount Vernon, expanded it, bought all kinds of fancy stuff that were even beyond his means. And he was wealthy at that time because he heard the cash registers in his head. Cha-ching! Martha was coming and she was bringing her fortune. 1762, a precursor to the Revolutionary War, Great Britain begins imposing tighter restrictions and higher taxes on the colonies. They don't offer any protection when the Indians attack Virginia's frontier to the west, and they're accused of cheating American merchants. The Brits also allowed the colonies to sink further in debt as a way to control them and give them no way out, so they could say, well, you owe us. Um, This was a tactic that was immediately employed by the United States against its enemies, primarily the Indians, and later even Germany, leading to World War II. Um, But at the time, it was condemned as a horrible thing to do because it was used against us. Washington's fortune begins to decline. Not much, mind you, not like our fortunes are. You know, he's not out there, like, living by the sweat of his brow. Um, But his fortunes ever so much decline, and this is intolerable to Washington. Nothing pisses him off than his money getting screwed with. Um, He takes no responsibility for his lavish spending and his love of consumerism, which soon became a widespread American trait. It's almost the American identity, consumerism. We buy stuff. Washington loved scented napkins from France. He loved lacy little doilies from England. (laughs) So at the same time... Everybody starts saying, buy American. They're recognizing their addiction to imported goods is keeping them subservient to Britain. How are they going to get independence if they need Britain's stuff? Um, Washington, he did scale back. But for him, he, he still was just consuming. He loved buying stuff. Whew. Let's see. Where does that bring us? That brings us to the Whiskey Rebellion. Now we have President George Washington. Um, Washington gets in office and is alarmed to see that after this long revolutionary war, the, the country is deeply in debt and nobody's paying any taxes because that was a big reason why these settlers were fighting. They're poor people. They're struggling. They're looking for opportunities. They're also greedy people and they don't want to pay taxes to the Brits. So what did the, the new American government do? They imposed taxes on whiskey and there was an uproar. The settlers said, screw you, come collect it. So this uproar is happening, and Washington is imposing taxes, trying to get the poor to pay money, while he still remains the richest man in America. The Constitution was written, we the people, but you know everybody in that room was a rich uh, landowner with slaves and plantations. Those are the people referenced in the Constitution. The president himself is the richest man in America, and now they're asking the poor people to pay money to help finance America. The poor people, to their horror, were realizing after this revolutionary war, it wasn't a revolution at all. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. A new group of rich bastards after their money to make their life harder, and they weren't putting up with it. Washington had to call the military in to put them down. And this set a precedent that the U.S. government was now willing to use violence on the poor to force compliance with its laws. 
I say, what laws serve the people if you need to enforce them by military power against the people themselves? Hmm. (laughs) And now my third charge against General Washington. I know I'm moving fast. We've got a lot of presents to cover here. Human trafficking. Boo. You might say this was normal for the time, but there were plenty of people who didn't own slaves. There were even abolitionists who were completely against slavery at the time. We were only taught that it's so normal because we're taught not to condemn these great white uh, framers, the founders. <laughs> so let's start with this charge, looking through my notes. Ah, in 1781, during the Revolutionary War. Now, at this time, Mount Vernon... Um, had hundreds of slaves. Between Washington and then Martha Custis, both of them brought slaves together into this relationship, and the the, the plantation was worked by many, many slaves. The British warship Savage appeared on the Potomac River while Washington was off fighting with his troops um, at different parts of the country, and it torched estates on the Maryland side. They They threatened Mount Vernon next if provisions were not provided. Now, at this time, Mount Vernon was under the watch of Washington's cousin, Lund Washington, who was terrified. He brought some cooked chicken, and while he was on board, the Brits spoke highly of Washington. They said how much they admired his military skill, and they were just very much uh, respectful of Washington, and they charmed Lund, who laterly returned with a large supply of livestock and other provisions. <laughs> Only when this ship left, the British ship Savage, did they realize that 17 of the slaves had escaped on board this ship. Now, this fact might not prompt much of a response, but look underneath the fact. They're in an American house owned by George Washington, who is the, the chief general fighting against the Brits. You can imagine the, these were illiterate slaves. The only news they heard was from the people of the household. How much good do you think they were hearing about the British soldiers? I imagine they were hearing nothing but bad stuff about these British soldiers they were fighting. How bad do things have to be on this familiar plantation for not one, not two, not three radical, crazy slaves, 17 to choose to get on board the ship with people they've heard nothing but bad things about and go into the complete unknown rather than stay on Mount Vernon? I say that speaks a lot to how Washington was treating his slaves. Woo! Mm-hmm. Um, in during at the beginning of Washington's second term, President Washington in 1793 signed the Fugitive Slave Act. Ooh. This um, was a statement of property. It meant that whether you're a free state or not, if a, if a slave escapes, that slave is private property. And if he escapes to a place to be free, then if you harbor the slave, you have stolen private property. It is still the property of the slave owner to come get it. You cannot harbor a free slave because they are not a free slave. They are a piece of property that need to be returned. This was signed by General George or President George Washington himself. Um, after the end of his presidency, um, actually, we don't know when this happened or even if this happened, but he is alleged to have fathered children with a slave named Venus. Now, slave raping was something that was pretty common back then. This actually is not something that's substantiated. Um, it's just an alleged charge. Now, more likely, something that has more evidence is that George Washington's um, stepson, Martha's son from a previous marriage, John Park Jackie Custis, 
was known to be a avid slave raper. He was known to rape many slaves. And this happened at Mount Vernon under George Washington's watch. Um, so I say he's responsible for this, at least in part. In 1799, by the time of Washington's death, he owned 124 slaves, and he freed them all in his will, which we're taught is a very, it shows how much that he abhorred slavery. He freed them all in his will. And indeed, during his life, he spoke against slavery very often. But what's instructive to me is this man didn't free a single slave while he could benefit from them. As long as he could profit from the slaves, he kept them. Only on his deathbed, when he could no longer make money from their free labor, did he free them. What we're not taught so often is that he controlled another 193 slaves, and most of them remained enslaved. Well, Moving on against President Washington, my fourth charge against him is war crimes. I will consult my notes. Okay, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, and when I say the beginning, I mean the very first year of it, 1775, the Mohawk and the Seneca sided with the British because they were more afraid of Americans. Um, They figured if they had to side with one person or another, if somebody was going to win this war, they were better off with the Britons who were putting restrictive boundaries on the Americans. Even though they weren't working, it seemed to be that there was a little bit of effort to move slower on Great Britain's part, rather than be stuck with the Americans who had already showed them willing to break any law. They were so land-hungry. Also, Great Britain was across the ocean. The Americans were right here in their face, in their backyard, and had already proven themselves to be untrustworthy and horrid neighbors, to say the least. So we have the Mohawk and Seneca siding with the British. We have the Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Onondaga, who stayed neutral. They figured white people's problems. Let them figure it out. Maybe they'll kill each other. We only have the Christianized Oneidas, who supported the settlers. So Washington wrote to Major General John Sullivan to strike first against the Haudenosaunee. This was the confederation that included all the tribes I just mentioned. And he wrote, to, I quote, to lay waste all the settlement around, that the country may not be merely overrun but destroyed. You will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruin of their settlements is effected. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us, and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them. Sullivan replied, The Indians shall see that there is malice enough in our hearts to destroy everything that contributes to their support. The Iroquois which also known as the Haudenosaunee, called Washington Konotakorius. In their language, that means town destroyer. Mm. I submit to you that this is a war crime. If someone in modern days had done this to another people and it got put on trial, many of us would condemn this. This is a war criminal. We're taught that he is a hero. In 1779, four years later, the Revolutionary War is still in full swing. General George Washington, um, well, let me back up. In Bermuda... There were slaves that were starving because of a trade embargo with the United States. Representatives of these starving slaves petitioned Congress for permission to buy provisions from American merchants. General Washington opposed, writing that a famine would, I quote, throw many additional mouths, end quote, on the overburdened British supply system. What he's saying basically is let these bastards starve because if we're more cold-hearted than Great Britain, Great Britain will have to, they won't let people starve and this will divide their provisions and make them weaker and give us a better chance of winning the war. Wow. Even Congress thought this was too cold-hearted to support and they ignored him and they ended up uh, agreeing to provisions for these starving slaves in Bermuda. But again, 
This is a war crime. Um, in 1779, the same year, Continental Congress, to fund the war that Washington was asking, um, he was having trouble keeping soldiers with him, sent three armies to scorch the earth across New York and to converge at Tioga, which was a central Seneca town. It's what's now called now northern Pennsylvania. Their orders were to wipe out Senecas, burn and loot all villages, destroy the food supply, and turn inhabitants into homeless refugees. New York and Pennsylvania colonies offered bounties on Seneca scalps, regardless of sex or age, as incentives for rangers to enlist and to support General George Washington to join his troops. Wow. 1781, two years later. Um, let's keep in mind who these people in Washington's troops were. They were poor people. Only rich people like Washington got to be generals. All the other people are struggling people, people on farms. They usually couldn't afford to own slaves. They were taught under the propaganda of the rich people to fight for their freedom. Mm -hmm. So there began to be mutinies. Washington's troops mutinied against him in Pennsylvania. They were hearing letters from back home. Their farms were struggling. Their children were sick. Their wives were starving. They needed help. They needed their menfolk to tend the crops. This war was going on and on. And for what purpose? The rich people were just still being rich and the poor people were getting poorer and poorer. So some of these people were saying, screw this. I need to go home. This is pointless. Washington put down that, that revolt. But a few weeks later, troops mutinied in New Jersey. This time, Washington rounded up the mutineers, these people that cared about their families, their families struggling back home, sometimes in dire need of the men to come back. And he ordered them to find the ringleaders, the people that were complaining the most. The people, when we say complain the most, we're talking about the people most worried about their families. He got the mutineers to round them up and to execute them, force them. He said, if you don't shoot this guy that was complaining about his family starving, we're going to shoot you. This is how Washington took control and kept control over the poor people that composed his troops. In addition, of course, as we already mentioned, to scalping Senecas, women, children, anybody. Because one of the things that this greedy culture had fostered in these men is what's in it for me. So a soldier needed some private incentive to, to fight with Washington. And if they had to, uh, an opportunity to scalp Senecas to get money, that was enough incentive for a lot of people. <sighs> so it's really hard to separate Washington from the culture he's embedded in. Um, and now for my last charge against President Washington. Why this man is impeachable, why he is not fit to lead us, or ever was. And this is a kind of a weird one. Unless you're like me and you hate technology and really uh, embrace how much technology has done harm, is I charge him as a crime for the U.S. Industrial Revolution. Um, when I say I charge him as a crime for the U.S. Industrial Revolution, let's go to 1786. This is right before Washington's presidency, but after the Revolutionary War. Now, Washington's making nice with Britain again. He even is corresponding back and forth with the innovative agriculturalist known as Arthur Young. Um, it said they shared a vision, which was articulated by Young in 1768, of looking forward to how, and this is a quote directly from Young, those regions which are now boundless forests, wastes, and wilds will one day be peopled with flourishing cities and adorned with beautiful cultivation and possessing in all their brilliancy the arts, the sciences, and all the consequences of luxury and empire. Well, fuck you, Arthur Young, because we are feeling all the consequences of luxury and empire right now. And George Washington empowered this by his love of technology. 
Washington was a known lover of innovation and machines. Any machine or any way to do something faster, easier, more economically viably, Washington was interested and he had supported it. He encouraged some for military purposes, like when John McPherson had a plan for explosive torpedoes that would, quote, destroy every ministerial armed vessel in North America, end quote, and David Bushnell's various infernal machines, including the submarine, the Turtle. So in other words, Washington was very interested in how to maintain power through violence. If you could come up with a machine, a way that would kill more people faster, Washington wanted it. This was a direct lineage that set the stage and the path that led us to having nuclear arms and all the other ugly things we have in this world. I'm not saying Washington is solely responsible, of course. It's a long, convoluted, complicated path. I'm saying he played his part to open that door. In 1790, that is considered the start of the American Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is considered to have started in Great Britain. 1790 is when it's said to have reached our shores, when Samuel Slater opened the first industrial mill in the U.S., increasing speed that cotton could be spun into yarn. This hastened the division between the North and the South. The South was based on agriculture. When you're in the South, you have a much longer growing season. You are invested in your slaves. You can make your money back. The more slaves you can buy, the more land you can cultivate through agriculture, the more money you can make. It's financially viable. The North also had plenty of slaves at this time, but it's not as financially viable. There is a shorter agricultural season. They struggled with these slaves. Buying a slave was like buying a house back then. You had to have money to buy a slave, and you better have some means for that slave to make that money back, or you were in the hole. And a slave, let's keep in mind, back back then was considered property, like a machine. So when the Industrial Revolution reached these shores, who do you think was the most eager to employ this new way of making money? The North. The South already had their way, so we started seeing industry spread across the North fairly quickly. And as was said just then, Samuel Slater's first machine, turning, um, where was I? Cotton. Cotton into yarn. So where do you think that cotton's coming from? The North is reliant on the slave industry in the South. There's no ethical uh, enlightenment happening. There's just a different way of making money. The North could afford to start thinking, oh, we, now we don't believe in slaves because we can't make any money off of them. So, oh, it's horrid. Um, and Washington, with his love of machines, I say, made that polarity that led to the Civil War worse. And finally, I will end as my last charge against Washington, um, against his technology, um, with what I consider his legacy towards what becomes Manifest Destiny, which we'll go into soon with other presidents. Quote, All restrictions of trade would vanish. We must go in the old ways, disputing and now and then fighting until the globe itself is dissolved. Here we have the melting pot. Here we have empirical... um, an empire that wants to cover the globe and dissolve it into the same people, destroying any diverse people that aren't Americans and making them into Americans. He stated this as a brave, new, noble vision, and we swallowed it as a brave, new, noble vision. But this was hastened by technology and especially the violence that technology fosters. And that's my case against General or President George Washington. Wow. And... I just, I must say that information that you shared about how the Southern states had the longer growing season and there wasn't a, there wasn't a difference between morality above the Mason-Dixon line and below it. It, it just made economic sense. That really blew my mind. 